You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. Humans have sought longevity since the very beginning of recorded human history. To achieve a long, healthy life or even immortality, humans have sought everything from the fountain of youth to magical elixirs. And this idea of immortality is so integrated into our popular culture today as well. But these stories have ancient roots. And folks achieving immortality by having an interaction with one of the undead, you know, a lay vampire, and achieving that long life that way, or through stories of warriors achieving immortality through all of their battles and getting favor from a perceived deity. There are all these stories of these different ways to achieve long life. But we know today that science tells a very different story. This isn't something that necessarily happens by accident. We do have many different genetic cards that are now being unlocked or uncoded that demonstrate some folks have it in their genetic cards to probably live a little bit longer than other folks. But as you're going to learn today from some of the leading experts in the world in the subject of longevity, it is not our genes, but it is our choices that have the biggest impact. And we've got the receipts to prove it. Now, there's one important caveat before we go into this episode. There's a very big difference between our lifespan and our health span. Yes, our lifespan has been increasing in recent centuries, but there's a caveat here as well. This doesn't take into consideration a lot of folks not surviving infancy and dropping that average life expectancy down significantly. For centuries, we have documentation that there were folks living a long, long healthy life, even past 100 years. Now, today, we're seeing this phenomenon taking place where the average life expectancy, yes, has increased overall. However, our lifespan has been extended, but our health span has been diminishing rapidly. What do I mean by health span? Your health span is the amount of years that you live with real health, functionality, and vitality. Rather than once we reach a certain point in our society where we have dramatic decline in our cognitive health and our physical health, we become reliant on other people, not just on other people and, and entities, but also on patchwork things, pharmaceutical medications to treat symptoms just to keep us ticking along. We want to increase not just our lifespan, but also our health span. And that's what today's episode is really all about. Because another really important phenomenon that's taken place recently is that our life expectancy here in the United States, right now, for the first time in recorded human history, has gone backwards. That's right. Each and every generation, our life expectancy has been increasing. Not health span, but lifespan has been increasing. And now we are the first generation currently existing right now who are not going to outlive our predecessors, the generations before us. Something is off. Something is happening that is, of course, shortening our health span, but also our lifespan. And this is something that we can do something about. But the key is success leaves clues. We have to learn from people who've actually achieved the health and vitality that we are seeking as we move on in years. And so today, Every single person that you're going to hear from is in their 50s, 60s, and even up into their mid-70s and achieving incredible levels of health and vitality. Many of them in their 70s are writing books and speaking all over the world and making a huge impact through that modality. 
teaching the youngsters what to do to achieve what they've achieved. And this is so important to me because I truly believe that unless you've done a thing, you can't really speak from a true place of understanding and experience. So this is why I'm not going to be the one to tell you how to achieve longevity because compared to these folks, I'm still a young thundercat, all right? But even within that, you know, I can speak from my position where I am right now and share what I've been able to achieve and putting me in that upper echelon of folks in my age bracket to be able to have incredible vitality and functionality and robust health and all the good stuff, disease prevention. But if we're talking about real longevity and our potential, these are the folks that we need to hear from. Now, when I refer to myself as a Thundercat, if you're like, what's a Thundercat? Well, of course, we've got the Urban Dictionary, where it's just, you know, a young, a young whippersnapper. But then the name Thundercat itself, this was an incredible television show when I was a, a kid growing up in the 80s. All right. Thundercats, Thundercats, Thundercats. Oh, my guy, Lionel, he was a, a little kid. And then he was basically put into this cryo chamber where they were like escaping their homeland. And he comes out the crowd chamber and he's aged. Like he's now he's like 20. So he went in there, he was like seven. Now he's 20. Grown man style, got, got the muscles, everything. And he's the king, you know? So all of his trials and tribulations about developing his mind to fit his physical frame, right? It's an incredible TV show. Back in the 80s, it's like so many TV shows and his cartoons had these little hidden messages, you know? Even like G.I. Joe, one of their mantras was, Knowing is half the battle. Speaking about awareness, right? Awareness opening the door for success. You know, but Thundercats really hit home for me. You know, my grandmother got me all the little action figures and the like. But a recent thing happened. And this was right before Christmas. I went to get some gifts for the family who lives next door. And one of the gifts was for a little boy who lives next door. And it was this Lego set, but it was from one of those random toy stores in the mall that is probably not gonna be there the next time you come to the mall. One of those, it just kind of moves spots, moves locations around the mall. There's nothing like buying something from like a gazebo because you can guarantee you're never gonna be able to take that back because they could just roll that bad boy right up out of there and disappear on you. But anyway, so I go into this toy store, I found uh, this great Lego set. He's really into Star Wars. And now I also know it's a problem because there's no prices on any of the toys. So, and they know it's Christmas time. You're going to pay once you stand in that line, that long line, and you get to that register, whatever the surprise is going to be, you're going to probably pay for it. So anyway, so I'm standing in line and I'm about to be the next. So I'm probably standing in line for maybe five minutes. And I see they have all of these different like replica swords. So like a Spartan sword or like a, a sword for a ninja or a knight. But in the middle of all of them, up on the wall behind the, cash, the cashier, was this gigantic Thundercat sword, the Sword of Omens. It was like, it spoke to me. It was like a, a bling. When I saw it, I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm seeing this sword. And so I get up to the cash register and the guy starts to check out the Lego. And I look up at the sword and I ask, hey, how much is that sword? And he says, it's $140. You want to hold it? I was like, yeah, absolutely, I want to hold it. And he said, come around, come around the back of the register. So I came around to the side of the register and he presented it to me as if I was getting knighted into this royal guild of action sword holders. You know, he had it in both of his hands and he reached it out to me. 
and I grabbed it and I felt the weight of that sword. It was like, it's a four foot, it's at least like four feet tall sword. And man, all of the childhood and nostalgia came rushing back. And he said, it's the last one. And of course I'm like, is this guy trying to, you know, but then there was another person checking somebody out. There was like, yeah, we had two dozen in, but they just went out so quickly. This was the last one that they had besides the, the, the display. And so I was like, absolutely. This is a Christmas gift to me. So long story short, being a Thundercat, I picked up this massive Thundercat sword that is now at my house. And I got to tell you, pretty much every day I go by and I pick that sword up and I'm up there just looking like a little kid playing around with this very dangerous sword, by the way. You could, you could probably hurt somebody with it, but you know, it's just like there's so much beauty here in our connection and in our stories and being able to share these things with my kids, for example, you know, and creating that nostalgia consciously for them. But also what I'm doing in my life is creating an environment of play because there's this wonderful statement that says, we don't stop playing because we get old. We get old because we stop playing. And so creating that environment of fun, of adventure, of curiosity, of play within my family, within my household, I think is such a gift that we can start today give to our family and give to our loved ones. See the world through the lens of play and adventure. And sometimes you might happen upon a sort of omens. Now, first up in our action adventure sequence dedicated to longevity is the one and only Mark Sisson. Mark is knocking on the door of his 70th birthday and he is shredded, all right? He's like shredder, he's like Vin Diesel, all right? He's Hugh Jacked, man, all right? Mark is just on a different level. And if you saw him today, you'd think he's just got that in his cards. He's just genetically gifted. But if you knew his story and you knew where he came from and how broken down his body was by being a long distance runner for many, many years, we're talking decades. And then he happened upon some powerful shifts in his nutrition. And he'll tell you right out of the gate, his nutrition and his sleep are hallmark for him. But in this clip, he's going to be sharing with you something specific about time-restricted feeding, and a little-known exercise secret that can increase your body's production of human growth hormone. HGH is also known as, quote, the youth hormone, All right? So to learn about longevity is learning from folks like this. Mark Sisson is a New York Times bestselling author and a bona fide health and fitness expert. His thriving community of folks who are dedicated to this primal movement has been amazing. His impact and reach is very, very wide reaching. Mark is also an accomplished speaker and he's been featured on just about every major media outlet. And in this clip, again, he's gonna be sharing with you an important tenet about our nutrition, but also a little insight about increasing the production of our youth hormone. So check out this clip from the amazing Mark Sisson. So a lot of people choose a compressed eating window. Uh, I get up in the morning, uh, I have a cup of coffee at 6.30, quarter seven. Um, I start, I read two papers, I do a couple of crossword puzzles and things like that to get my brain going for the day. Then I go to work, I might break at 9.30 or 10 to go do a workout. Um, I do the workout clearly fasted. I don't eat after the workout. Uh, and I don't eat my first meal till one o'clock in the afternoon. And that's typically a salad with some kind of protein on it and a healthy fat on the dressing. 
Um, and then I eat my last meal of the day around 7. So I have a six-hour compressed eating window. Mm -hmm. That's the time that I'm taking in calories. The other 18 hours um, is when all the good stuff happens in the body. That's when I, the body goes, hey, I'm going to burn off some stored body fat. I'm going to repair some of the damage to, to the cells. I'm going to do some house cleaning in the cells. I'm going to actually consume some of the damaged proteins and some of the damaged fats. I might do some repair to the DNA because all this stuff happens in the absence of calories, right? So that's the... The, the concept of intermittent fasting, the concept of reduced uh, or compressed eating windows has become kind of the new uh, way of looking at fuel and energy systems in the body, um, but you have to have done the work to build the metabolic machinery right. because, once again, hunger just takes everything off the table. Hunger destroys this whole concept. The fact that you can, you can create a system that so suppresses hunger that you have to sometimes think, oh, geez, I haven't eaten. It's 4 o'clock. I haven't eaten yet today. Yeah. Maybe I better eat something, right? Um, I could go all tonight or tomorrow, but I'll eat something. Um, is a whole different concept from being tied to this three meals a day, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. If I don't eat breakfast, then I'm off to a bad start and my metabolism won't fire. By the way, one of the things that I find fascinating, and this is part of my research in this, in this book, this sort of assumption that we, we, we need to build a fast-burning metabolism. Like, that's what I want, is a fast-burning metabolism, right? That, where did that come from? Because that's so, again, antithetical to conservation, to, to, to conserving energy. And, and yet, most people would say, um, oh, what's the most amount of food I can eat at this meal and not gain weight and not feel like crap? You know, what's the <laughs> most amount that I can eat? Right. Most people, a <laughs> lot of people, I go, to the, I go to the gym and I see people on the treadmill, like 450 calories read out on the LED or yeah. 600 dude, you're like sweating and struggling and suffering. Why do you do that? You know what the answer is? Because I like to eat. Oh. Are you kidding me? Yeah, dude, you would rather put yourself through that amount of misery just so you can take a couple of more bites of something you probably shouldn't eat in the first place? Mm. And yet, this is how people tend to kind of orchestrate their day and live their lives. There's this inherent gluttony in Americans in particular. Yes, we're hardwired to overeat, but that's a survival mechanism from... Yeah two million years ago, yes, we're, we're hardwired to be able to burn that off, but we have to train ourselves to do that. So it's, but it's, I just find it fascinating that people would say, um, so I'm in the gym mostly to build a fast metabolism. I want to waste food. I want food to pass through me quickly. You know, I, wanna, I don't want to absorb it. I want to be able to eat as much food as I possibly can. And look, I enjoy food as much as the next guy. In fact, I make a bold and brave statement. I mean, look, I'm I enjoy every bite of food I put in my mouth. I don't eat anything that doesn't taste great, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I want to and I deserve it. And it's my, you know, it's one of my great pleasures in life. Yeah. But I also know when to cut it off. I know when I'm no longer hungry for the next bite. Yeah. You know, there's a certain, there's a certain, um, I, I don't know, intuitive understanding that, you know, there's going to be food whenever I want it. So... I don't need to finish my plate just because there's more food on the plate. I can easily wrap it up, take it home. I can easily, you know, share it with my partner. I can easily give it away to whatever. I can easily just throw it down the disposal. I really don't need to eat everything that's on my plate all the time. That's one of the things I've noticed about myself over the past year and a half of doing this um, is I get by on probably 30, 35% fewer calories than I thought I needed, yeah. certainly than I used to eat even as recently as four or five years ago. 
And it's like, again, it's so... That's conditioning. You know, I remember when I was a kid, you know, same thing, it's on your plate, eat it all. Yeah. You know, and yeah. instead today, sometimes we'll use ourselves as the garbage disposal yeah. or the trash can. No, I mean, it, it's, and again, like somebody, you go to somebody's house and they serve you this big piece of cheesecake and your brain goes, well, they must think that's a serving size. So I'm <laughs> going to have to, I'll be fine. Yeah. I have permission to finish that. You know, and somebody else might give you a tiny little sliver and the same thing. Oh, that's a serving size. I'll, I'll finish mm-hmm. that. What makes the difference is, you know, how your brain responds to this food. So with a piece of rich, creamy cheesecake, you might, the first bite might be, oh my God, that is so good. Yeah. By the way, I'm, I'm going to partake of that. But the, so that first bite might be a 10 on a scale of 10. Then the second bite, it might be, a, you know, it's an eight. Okay, yeah. I got it. I got the tanginess. I got the sense of it. By the time you get to the third or fourth bite, it's a five or six or a four maybe. And now you're just, now we're just arguing over, you know, how much you can stuff down your gullet. You got the sense of what it was. You got the sweetness. You got the tartness. You got the experience. Where does it end? Where does it stop? So that's kind of a skill that we develop mm-hmm. within this keto reset program is like understanding, you know, where that, where, where the satiety factor ends and you, you're just becoming a human garbage disposal and, and gluttonous. And, it, you know, sometimes nothing bad will happen from you having consumed that. Yeah. It's not like, oh my God, you've screwed everything up. It's just, what's the point? Yeah. And if, if you've cleaned up your act, you'll also get to the point where you go, you know what, I know that if I have more than, say, three or four bites, my heart's going to start racing. I'm going to start sweating. I'm going to start secreting some insulin. I'm going to start doing, you know, I'm going to go back to a pattern that is uncomfortable to me. Yeah. And it's going to last for a couple of hours. So is three extra minutes of gluttonous pleasure um, worth four or five hours of like, no, geez, I probably shouldn't have done that, you know? Yeah. Because you've, you've become so attuned to nutritious, nutrient-dense, good food. Uh, <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm just thinking about, we. I think we just created a new t-shirt here, Humans Garbage Disposal. Yeah. Like for the holidays, yeah. you know, put that shirt on yeah. and just let it be known. That's what you're going to do, you know. Yeah. It's so fascinating. And you, before, I, and I don't want to forget this, when you mentioned about training yeah. and then essentially fasting until your, your feeding window after that, it immediately reminded me of something I came across a while back about human growth hormone um, being upregulated with with that is there is yeah you know anything so, about that of, of course so that's another just side benefit of not eating is um human growth hormone and testosterone get pulsed up a little bit the way i utilize that in my training is that's why i train fasted so when you tr- when you do a uh, let's say you do a heavy leg day or you do a full body workout metcon type workout once or twice a week uh, the reason you're doing that is to get better you're not doing it to beat yourself up unless you love that kind of stuff. Um, and you might be a CrossFitter who goes and does that every single day. But, but, um, and I'm not picking on CrossFit, I'm just saying three days on, one day off, that's a lot of work, right? Yeah. So c- conceivably, you're doing this because you want to get stronger. Well, how do you get stronger? Well, you get this, this hormetic stress, this acute stress that we talked about earlier. Um, you get micro tears in the muscle. It's all good, uh, provided you get this upregulation, this pulse of human growth hormone and testosterone. And that's what's going to, to cause the muscles to get stronger and, bi- and bigger and bring the amino acids in to create the, the new muscle tissue or the, to repair the damaged muscle tissue. Now, one of the things that blunts this pulse of growth hormone and testosterone is insulin. Yeah. 
And so the concept of a post-workout meal, it's, and again, there's no right or wrong answer here. These are just choices. Yeah. So one choice in the old day, my old way of doing this would have been, all right, um, I just did a hard workout. And it was like, you know, 10-mile run hard, or it was uh, eight times one mile on the track with a half-mile rest in between. And I'm, I've exhausted all my uh, glycogen. And I got to go run 20 easy tomorrow, easy being a relative term. So I'm going to go replenish my glycogen stores. So in replenishing my glycogen stores, to be able to do it again the next day, that was probably a smart move. Um, Now, conversely, in the gym, you go, well, I did a heavy leg day. Um, I want want my muscles to repair. I'm not going to repeat this thing tomorrow because if I did it right, I won't even be able to do it for three more days. I'll move on to a different body part. But you know what I mean? I, I mm-hmm. won't be able to do it. I'll, be, I'll have done enough work that I'm so sore that I need to, to spend the time to repair. So the last thing I want to do is blunt that hormonal response with, a, with the growth hormone and the testosterone by taking a post-workout meal. Because by taking a post-workout meal, all that's going to do is, is increase my glycogen. But I'm going to build back glycogen anyway regardless of whether I eat or not, I'm still going to replenish glycogen. It's just going to take a little bit longer. But as long as I'm not going to do it tomorrow, then I don't care that it takes two days or three days because I'll be at the same place in terms of glycogen if I do a hard workout, another leg set, you know, in three or four days that I would have been had I done the post-workout meal. But now by choosing not to do that, I'm taking advantage of this ketogenic type response, which is a pulsing growth hormone and testosterone, and a maximizing of the benefits of the workout. Now, even within that fasting window that Mark was talking about, he still opens the door for some storied, specific beverages that not only help to keep that fasting window extended, but also provide the body with these stress-mimicking nutrients or fast-mimicking nutrients that actually increase the body's level of autophagy of insulin sensitivity and the breaking down of stored energy and using it, stored fat and using it for fuel. One of those stored beverages is organic high quality coffee. Stanford University recently deduced that the caffeine in coffee is able to defend against age-related inflammation. Their research revealed that light to moderate coffee drinkers live longer and more healthfully, thanks in part to the protection that this coffee-derived caffeine provides by suppressing genes related to inflammation. You're going to learn in this episode today from one of the leading experts in this topic talking about genes and longevity, just how important this is. This is nutrigenomics. This is how our nutrition is a epigenetic controller. It's, It's something that is influencing the expression of our genes. And this is something that we have the power to change. So, With this, okay, we got organic high-quality coffee, so not coffee that's coming along with pesticides and toxic molds and microplastics and all this crazy stuff that can be in your favorite coffee, but getting high-quality coffee. But for me today, specifically, this is going back to my Thundercat story, the mentor for the main character, for Lionel, the guy who had the Sword of Omens, there's always this mentor, this Yoda-like figure, and for him it was... Jaga, all right, Jaga. And I always thought his name was Chaga. And even when, you know, I grew up and I learned about Chaga, I immediately thought about Thundercats. I was like, was his mentor named after a mushroom? But it's actually Jaga, all right, with a J. 
Chaga with a CH is one of the most renowned, most studied, most remarkable medicinal mushrooms in human history. And I say this because it's probably the highest antioxidant food used by humans ever recorded. Again, the highest source of antioxidants. So chocolate, chaga's more. Acai, chaga's more. You name it, chaga has more antioxidants. Specifically, these antioxidant compounds have been found to increase superoxide dismutase in the body. This is a natural antioxidant enzyme that's produced within the body that plays a significant role as a free radical scavenger. It essentially acts like a bodyguard. It's like Kevin Costner in our system that protects your DNA from damage and helps to reduce the workload placed on your immune system. Isn't that important today? So my high quality organic coffee is also blended with chaga. And today I had one that's blended with chaga and lion's mane medicinal mushroom, which data published in biomedical research had test subjects with a variety of health complaints, including anxiety and poor sleep quality. They were given lion's mane or placebos for four weeks. And the participants who used the lion's mane had significant reductions in their irritation and their anxiety levels compared to those in the placebo group. There's one place to get this and that's Four Sigmatic. Go to F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model. And you're going to get 10% off at least it might even hook you up with a little bit more. All right, go to foursigmatic.com forward slash model for 10% off plus of their incredible organic coffee blends. And also they have the straight elixirs themselves. So we're talking about the mushroom of immortality. You know which mushroom that is? Rishi. It's known as the mushroom of immortality. They have that Rishi elixir as well. All right, so you've got Rishi, lion's mane, cordyceps, all together as their standalone elixirs or blended together with hot cocoa or even in coffee blends. I absolutely love them. Foursigmatic.com forward slash model. Next up in our longevity compilation is the person who wrote the book, Aging in Reverse. I'm talking about fitness expert, Natalie Jill. Natalie has been a fitness icon for many years, but her first magazine cover didn't come until literally just a few months before her 40th birthday. All right, prior to that, she was struggling off and on with her health. And she decided, you know what? At this time in her life, when most folks have kind of packed it in, like this is it, this is my lot in life. I can't get better from this point. You know, I'm fed this story that things just continue to devolve. And she was like, you know, I'm gonna be in the best shape of my life when I turn 40. I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure it out to turn things around and transform my life. And by doing that, she not only transformed her own life, she impacted the lives of millions of others. So in this clip, she's going to be sharing with you an important mindset shift around aging and around longevity. And this is critical. Check out this clip from the amazing Natalie Jill. So the reason I call my book Aging in Reverse is imagine if we didn't have all that outside noise around aging. Because when I say aging, especially to women, um, what comes up for them is they don't want to be that or they they feel dated or has been. So people want to fight, fight, fight. Like I, I need to look 20 forever. I need to look 30 forever. But that doesn't have to be the way. And I'm not saying go accept and age gracefully either. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is it doesn't have to look a certain way. Aging can look like whatever you want it to look like. 
absolutely. It could be your powerful years. It could be the years that you get stronger. It could be the years where you learn more, where you become more authentic, where you have more fun. It could be all of those things, but it starts with that shift of like, okay, what am I telling myself about this? What am I deciding? What do I want? And where am I finding evidence to support things? Like if you're finding evidence all day long that, hey, 40s, 50s, 60s is bad, and that's what you keep programming yourself, of course you're gonna set yourself up for issues. But when you look for the opposite and you validate that people can be healthy, can be strong, can be vibrant, can do these things, it starts to shift your perspective on that as well. Oh, so, so good, so powerful (laughs) and so real. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about as Mm -hmm. well recently is that we are bombarded with messages of aging is, you know, because of all the examples and also even the way we've grown up and seeing the aging of our parents, our grandparents, and there are folks who, you know, they are needing assistance in their in their 50s and 60s, you know, and maybe their you know, arthritis so bad they're in a wheelchair or a cane. And but then there's also these examples of people who are in their 70s and 80s who are running marathons totally. and competing in Spartan races, totally. and, you know, living their best life. So what are you going to decide to make your norm? Like, yeah. that's the thing. Look, what like, I hate statistics. I hate when doctors say, well, statistically, you have an X percent chance to live or you have percent chance of this happening. Like, I yeah. hate that because you could be the 1%. You could be the 2%. Like, get rid of that and just go for, like, where's the evidence of the one that's overcome this? You know, with my leg, with that happening in my back and my leg, I instantly could have said, oh, I can't work out anymore. I'm not going to. I This is just what happens. And you know what? No one would have challenged me. I would I could have enrolled the whole world on why my leg doesn't work and I can't work out anymore and I can't do this and I'm going to do a whole other career. I could have that could have easily been done. But that's not that is not fully living and aging in reverse. And I, you know, I interviewed a, a woman on my podcast, a Janine Shepard, and her story really stuck with me because she is a she was an Olympic athlete. She was training for the Olympics. She was hit by a truck hit by a truck, training for the Olympics, imagine this, totally paralyzed, airlifted to a hospital, told she would never walk again by multiple doctors, told this, every reason to believe that. She refused to listen to it. She found evidence of others that could retrain their brain, and she is a documented walking paraplegic now. A walking paraplegic. There's been movies about her. All because she decided and refused to let in the noise that that wasn't going to happen for her. Mm. And when I heard that story, when I interviewed her, when I met her in person, it's like, how can I stay caught up on my leg with that? Like, really, how can I stay caught up on that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, again, just get this message. We have to tune into different stories. Yes. You know, and not get caught up on the societal norms and conditions. Because the reality is, for, you know, centuries prior mm-hmm. to this, there was a whole different experience in aging. Yeah. You know, and if people think like, you know, oh, well, we live a lot longer now. That's taking it, when we're talking about the average, we're taking into consideration, you know, a lot of people dying a lot younger. Totally. You know, due to, you know, uh, not having access to health care and, you know, clean processes and this kind of things, infection. Mm-hmm. But we actually see, if we look at indigenous cultures, folks who are much older, yes. still out kicking it, dancing with the kids, being a contributing part of the society. And today it's just yeah. a different story. And let me tell you, that's a perfect example too of you look at years ago, somebody somebody had to decide it was possible to live longer, right? Yeah. That had to happen. So I have a vision that 100 years from now, 50 and 60 is not gonna be old. Like yeah. that will still be young. People will still be having kids then maybe. That'll still be your, your youth because 100 years ago, it was very different, the the life expectancy. 
150, 200 years ago, totally different story. So this is, you have to have that vision and that willingness to step out of what you've been told or what you've believed and look at there's there's another possibility. And here's the thing, right or wrong, you might not agree with me, okay? But right or wrong, what does it hurt to believe that? Like seriously, like you have, if you want to give in to excuses and validating and saying it's not possible and argue with me, great. Is that make your life any better? Because we've just taken away any possibility. If I say, you know what, you're right. Your thyroid, you're this, your metabolism, you're right, it sucks. You're right, your hormones are shot. You're right, mm. you're just gonna be overweight now. You're right, you're gonna be in pain forever. You're right. Like, what does that do for you? What kind of life is that? That's the life without hope. Like, so to me, validating excuses serves no purpose. It literally serves no purpose. It makes you temporarily feel better in a moment. It does not do anything to help you live a bigger life. And for me, I'm taking a stand for people to have a bigger life because validating excuses is doing a disservice to people. Mm, I love this so much. And this is why I love the book because you're working on the stuff that really matters because mm -hmm. we hang on so tightly to our stories of limitation. Yes. And it's just because it's a, it's a sense of certainty in our lives. You know, things have been this way, but they'll continue to be this way. You yeah. know, your past will equal your future if that's where you decide to live. And helping people to become more aware and to shift from these limiting perspectives that we ha have, these self-imposed stops, totally. is huge in giving us freedom. So what's interesting, and I, because I do talk about food in here, and right. I talk about uh, planning your plate. And what I, what's, what's funny is a lot of times somebody will say, well, what, I'm getting older, so I'm gaining weight. And what they're not, what they're failing to see is how they ate and acted maybe younger. Maybe it wasn't the best way either. It's just that they were younger, so it made it a little bit easier. So it's not that it's not possible. It's just that now we really do get to look at what is health and what is fueling us with good nutrients versus just, you know, helping us cope with feelings. So food and nutrients take on a whole new meaning because if you eat, if you practice conscious eating and you're really eating with foods that are going to help keep you vibrant and young and energetic and focused, it's just a win-win situation. It's the perfect winning formula. Absolutely. Well, I can't have you here and not talk a little <laughs> bit about the plan your plate because yeah. you've got an uh, interesting take on fasting, which we know, you know, we've talked about yeah. this on the show before, many different benefits, but there's different flavors of it totally. for us to to take on for ourselves. Totally. So so first, the premise of the what I teach with eating is an unprocessed natural food diet. That's step, step one. So like yeah. eating real natural foods. And what I tell people is to focus on adding in more of the good, which makes less room for the bad. So instead of going extreme with, I can't have all these things, look at like, can I add in more of the good? So unprocessed natural real food is my first first rule. My second rule is about looking at foods that cause inflammation because we want to lessen that, especially as we age, right? So I want to I want to set my body, I want to set your body up to win. So by feeding you fast food and processed junk, I'm not setting you up to win because we're gonna any if you do have an injury or you have inflammation, it's just gonna get worse. Right. So why not eat foods that are going to fight against that? So I take inflammation really seriously and I take foods that are known to cause inflammation out of the plan. And then the fasting thing, I'm not against fasting. I'm not for or against it, but here's what I do know. When you give your body a break from digestion and you give your body a break from secreting insulin, you are going to lose fat and have better focus and more energy. And when we're constantly eating and constantly making our bodies work to deal with that, we are going to be in a state of foggy brain and fat storage and all of that. So 
the reason I talk about what I call modified fasting versus like full on fasting or intermittent fasting is I want things that can be a lifestyle for people. So traditional intermittent fasting, you eat all your food in four to six hours, really. And that's just not even really doable for a lot of people. I mean, if it is great, but that's very hard to do. So what I teach is giving your body a break. So let's say you eat your last meal at six, you wouldn't eat till six again the next day, which is just a 12 hour overnight thing, which at least gives your body a break. And then also giving your time a longer space between meals. So rather than having the six to eight meals a day, we have two or three meals a day. Next up in our longevity compilation is one of my favorite people, Dr. Alejandro Younger. Alejandro Younger, MD, is a New York Times bestselling author of Clean, Clean Gut, and Clean Eats. He was talking about the health of the gastrointestinal tract and the microbiome years before it was in vogue. And in his primary practice, he focused on cardiology. That was what his training was in. But he began to see that there was a much bigger story than what was provided through his conventional education and began to study nutrition and other modalities of health and wellness to really give his patients the very best care possible. And since then, he's now sought after by some of the the biggest names, celebrities, and everyday folks for his incredible wealth of knowledge. And he is yet another example of walking the talk demonstrating what longevity really looks like. So check out this clip from Dr. Alejandro Younger. What I always tell my patients, and I see incredible results, is eat real foods. Don't eat food-like products. Eat foods as you find them in nature. And try to have variability in species and in colors. Of plants, mostly. But I'm also convinced that... that um, there is nothing wrong with good animal protein. So as long as the animals that it comes from are living in the wild, just like nature designed them to live, and eating what nature designed them to eat. Yeah. Yeah, so so I, I don't want to confuse people with too many names and too many things. You know, you go on, the, on, on Instagram and there's all these geniuses. I mean, I love them. They're all colleagues of mine. Some of them are friends of mine. And they break it down, you know, but it's kind of confusing. I like to take a simpler yeah. approach and say, you know what? Imagine that you were living in nature. What would you find? What would you what would you be eating? You wouldn't be eating things from cans and bottles and, and bags and boxes. You'd be eating plants and, and animals. So do that. I love you. This is this is the answer, you know. These are the type of things folks ask me about when I'm doing media. But the truth is there, there aren't specific, you know, just eat these three foods for liver detoxification. It's really an approach. It's a, it's, a, it's a framework, which is to eat diversity. And also that diversity is going to help with our gut diversity too, right? You know what, what, I'm, what I'm detecting, what I'm sensing and, and, be, and seeing, witnessing, is that, that, you know, we say food is medicine, but people are thinking of it as medication, not medicine. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they want to do. Uh, w- they ask me all the time, "What food is good for for this?" I said, "Well, this, you know, there are of course foods that have cert- more value of certain nutrients than others, but it's not like you can continue your life as it is and eat more blueberries, mm. and 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 then you'll be fine." 
So you treat food as medicine, but not as medication. And this obsession with knowing the, the every component of every food so that you can have more of that if you're this or that, I think it's good when you when you already are doing the basic things, right? But if you take it isolated, then you're turning food into medication and not medicine. To pivot from that sentiment, something else that is invisible but very real. It's like it's a deeper translation of energy in our bodies. All of this is really operating on these electrical impulses. And you being somebody who specialized in cardiology, you understand that better than most people. Can we talk about the electrical nature of cellular communication, of organs, even the gut? Really, we are electrical beings, right? Because when you when you go down and start breaking down the cell into molecules and the molecules into atoms and the atoms into into subatomic particles it's very similar to electricity mm. and so we are electrical beings everything is governed by electricity right the heart is governed by electricity the the way that you know if a cell is dead or alive is if there is an electrical difference between the inside and the outside so electricity really is the sign of life. How do you measure if somebody's brain is working? An electroencephalogram. How do you measure if a heart is, is working? An electrocardiogram. So electricity is really what is, we are made of electricity, but we're also governed by electricity. Mm. Can you share how this impacts the gut specifically? Does this influence the movement? Of things that electrical currency. So one of the one of the the things that that um, the gut the gut depends on is the peristaltic movement. You know, when you eat, the 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 intestines will propulse food down by contracting the muscles around the gut, squeezing the food down. The 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 segment below it relaxes. When the food gets there, it contracts again. Now, how is that governed? By the neuroenteric system, by the, the brain in the gut, right? Mm. So how does the brain and the, and the neurons work? Through electrical impulses, right? Now, when that same uh, uh, nervous system in the gut is busy reacting to things, then it ain't gonna have the resources or the or the attention to put. And what is the result for a lot of people? Constipation, which is again a global pandemic, right? And and so uh, hindering to to our wellness, right? Because it's it's like not being able to take the garbage. Imagine in your house, if you accumulate the garbage and you never take it out, you wouldn't be able to live. And that is what happens at a cellular level when constipation is the case. How is constipation uh, resolved? By resolving the electrical activity mm. in the gut. Now, but that is also connected to a lot of things. Yeah. Let's just say there's a breaker on the amount of electricity that we can generate. And in our culture, a lot of that electrical energy is being used for digestion constantly 
and the digestion of abnormal things, our body trying to figure it out and using so much of that electrical energy. Could this be a reason why that energy, in a sense, is it's getting siphoned for this and it's being pulled away from our ability to think logically, our ability to have empathy? What do you think about that? I, you know, there's two types of energy just in, bro- in a broad spectrum chat. There's the energy that we generate moment to moment in our mitochondria, right? By burning glucose and oxygen into ATP. And then, and then there's the energy that, that a, a spiritual master, Gurdjieff, talks about as being stored in capacitors. You know, and this is a little bit esoteric, but, but if you think about it, when you go to sleep, and you wrote a book about this, what really happens? You recharge those capacitors that there's no other way of recharging. We, we, we haven't come up with any thing, any invention that will recharge whatever it is that we re- recharge when we sleep and we know how important it is to sleep. So when you, when you have a good night's sleep and you recharge those capacitors, you wake up in the morning and yes, you're gonna be generating ATP all the time but it is these capacitors that have a very important function. And everybody's talking about the mitochondria and how to optimize their function, right? And a lot of people are talking about how important sleep is, but not a lot of people are talking about why sleep is that important. So when you, I mean, how it works, what's what's the mechanism behind it, right? And I invite you to read Gurdjieff, there's an amazing book called In Search of the Miraculous, written by Peter Demianovich Ospensky, who was a student of Gurdjieff, and he, and he describes the capacitors, and he describes how there's a big capacitor and there's, and there's a couple of other smaller capacitors. And when you exhaust the big capacitor, the, 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 you know, the flow of energy switches to a smaller capacitor. At the moment of the switch is when you, when you yawn, Right, that the yawning is caused by the switching of one capacitor to a smaller capacitor. Now, you are waking up with, let's say, a hundred units of energy in that capacitor. Now, that has to be distributed amongst all the systems, right? When there is one system that works more than it should be working, then other systems are going to suffer. Mm. For example, when you have a big meal and you're digesting a big meal, as you said, the thinking system is mm. is uh, depressed and you kind of the body puts you to sleep because the body considers digestion a survival thing, you know, because food wasn't as available all the time as it is now. So our life depending on depended on when you found food being able to fully digest it and absorb it so so that's why in our evolution we gave the, the, the you know evolution gave so much importance to the gut that it really takes over other systems even the thinking mm. even mentation so because these days most people are digesting 24 7 you know we eat all day long breakfast lunch and dinner no other species in the planet does that we are digesting all day long. Just go on the streets and grab a hundred people at random in a, in a modern city. And of course, there's a lot of homeless people now, right? So 
this this uh, formula may not work that well because only people maybe are not digesting all the time like everybody else but everybody is at some stage of digestion necessarily digestion is a consume energy consuming process it'll steal energy from detoxification mm -hmm. from defense and repair even from ambition and that's why we are so dulled up and so anesthetized people are not thinking on their own people are not ambitious and I'm talking about not only ambition like in LA to be famous or to work and make money I'm talking about ambitions to discover to connect to improve right we are we are dulled down because we are digesting all day long I say that breakfast lunch and dinner is killing humanity no longevity compilation would be complete without record-breaking fitness expert Shalene Johnson she actually has the record, the Guinness record for the most fitness DVDs ever sold, all right? Her programs are probably in one of your friends and family's house if you don't have them yourself, all right? So she was popping all over the different infomercials, the fitness infomercials very, very early on and has been inspiring folks for many years. Now, with Chalene, I know her personally and she's just remarkable. She's actually one of my wife's best friends. And when I think about Shalene, I think about having it all. You know, she's somebody who had that grind mentality and was just really working to become successful, but she had a shift in her perspective. And also, you know, her health is going to start to get pulled away as she's striving and striving and doing what our culture is telling us to do in order to be successful. And so she made it a priority, her family, top priority, her relationship with her husband, Brett, top priority and created systems and structures, but it starts with the mindset that you really can have it all. You can have a successful business and have a great family life as well. You can have a great family life and successful business and you can be radiantly healthy as well. It is possible. Now, there's a system to it all because, and here's the key, no one is perfect. There are gonna be things that are imbalanced from time to time, but we have to have more examples that it's possible. We have to have more examples to demonstrate how we can create a culture of good health for ourselves and our families, a culture of great relationships, a culture of financial security versus what we are seeing today. Just these issues are rampant in our, in our society. And it's not that these things aren't possible to have great health as a norm. It's that the way that things have been run and what we've been programmed to believe is possible has been Part of the, it's, it's like a, a seed that's been planted within our society's psyche that these things are unattainable. These are for those people. But then you find out people's stories, like Shalene, coming from the D. She's from Detroit. I think she was like selling used cars or something. You know, she was out there hustling early on and just trying to find a way to make it happen. She didn't come from the best circumstances. But again, as we hear these stories and we listen, like, don't just listen with our, 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 our outer ear, but listen with our inner ear. Listen with our heart and hear the, the wisdom behind people's words and pay attention to their results. Because for me, I don't really care how people's mouth move. I don't care what they're saying as much as seeing what, how their feet are moving. I care more about results. Show me. I'm from Missouri. 
You know it's coming from the show me state. I need to see it. All right. Show me what's possible. Don't talk about it. Let me see what your what your life results are like. You know, because it's one thing to have theory. It's another thing to be the walking, talking representation of what's possible. And so with Shalene, she's made a major impact in fitness and overall health and nutrition and business. She has a very, very big social media brand and marketing brand that helps folks to be successful in whatever their passion is. So within this, in this particular clip, she's going to be sharing with you this really cool insight. And it just makes sense if you look at our lineage and how, how we evolved to achieve health and longevity. And it's this concept of cross-training your diet. All right, now check out this incredible clip from the one and only Shalene Johnson. We have this natural ability to want to stay alive. It's what our bodies want to do is keep us alive and keep everything the same. So homeostasis is what often will result in people gaining weight because they're like, wow, I just went keto and I lost all this weight and I'm gonna stay keto because I told everyone I was keto, and, but then they start gaining weight and they can't figure out what's going on. Um, same thing with exercise. You know, I've been doing the same exercise program and I lost all this weight to start with, yeah. and now I'm still doing this exercise program. I'm eating the same, but I'm gaining weight. And realizing it's very much like something we've accepted in terms of uh, fitness, mm -hmm. and that is, you know, just you've got to cross train. You've got to change things up. You've got to have cycles to your training so that you're always improving. You're always kind of keeping the body guessing. And then taking a look at what our ancestors did. You know, the food that was available in the winter wasn't available in right. the summer. And they so were you, forced to. They're forced to phase. And yeah. so that's how we have been designed to thrive. Yeah. And guess what's really fun about phasing is you, you're, that next thing that you're really excited about eating is right around the corner. You don't have to put your identity into a food. And mm -hmm. I think so many people do that. They just wanna yeah. put a you know, stake in the ground and say, well, I'm vegetarian or I'm you know, raw vegan or I'm uh, paleo or keto, whatever it is. Yeah. And I think what's probably the best way for all of us to approach this is, this is what's serving me right now. Yeah. But then phasing your diet allows you to not have to experience that, that weight plateau or the weight gain that often comes when we try to do the same thing day after day, week after week, year after year. This is, it seems so Captain Obvious, you know. Yeah. But when you're saying this, I'm even thinking about, you know, how we put ourselves into these boxes. And it creates so much dissonance between us, too. And we can't just talk about the majority of things that work for all of us, you know, because right. it's just like... You know, paleo for life, fool. You yeah. know, we're just throwing up our own little, you know, like what set you claiming, you know? Right. I'm um, keto. Well, duh, you don't know this, right. you know? And so it's just opening ourselves up. And, and it's not fun to be around those kind of people either. The ones yeah. you're like, oh, boy, you know, they're going to start talking about their whatever. Yeah. And it, it feels kind of judgy. And then most of us, we just don't want to be wrong, right? Like, I, yeah. I don't have a dog in the fight. I just don't want to be wrong. I want to know what I should do. And so we hang on dogmatically to these labels or you know way of eating when really if we just approached our diet from the standpoint of like this is what's right for me yeah. right now. So first of all, big shout out to you know all the different frameworks because all of these frameworks are valuable. You know, mm. uh, paleo, vegetarian, true, uh, raw food. All yeah. of these things have great value, and that they give us structure. They give us these things to pay attention to. 
but what we're really trying to, and especially you know, with your new book, is to communicate is to not put yourself in a box that may be hurting you, right. and also something that might not allow for you to experience enjoy a greater level of health or to accomplish whatever your one the, the, with the one three one mm-hmm. whatever your one goal is because of a diet dogma. That's now right. again, not to say that they're not valuable, right? Which you know I, I subscribe lives. to many of those things, sure. but. We need to really listen to our inner guidance system first and foremost. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I love that cross training too with cross training your yeah, diet. Yeah, it's love like it. we've accepted that from a fitness standpoint. Like we we just know you've got to cross train, you've got to phase your diet, you've got to um, you know e- even just thinking about how athletes train and they do it in cycles. Mm. Everything happens. Everything happens in cycles. Our sleep happens in cycles. Our hormones happen in cycles. You, know, you think about farming. Everything happens in cycles when it comes to life, and that's how we were meant to thrive. It just makes sense. It adds order, and it's so freeing to have that approach. Yeah. You know, because I think so many of us we we don't know that we are smart enough to figure this out. We really are. Absolutely. And we have permission to. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I love it so much. And by the way, so you do incorporate and encourage in, in part of the protocol there, you know, that um, not just diet phasing, but macro phasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, in each one of the phases, there are three phases in the 131. And each phase is designed specifically to target one mode of health so that mm-hmm. ultimately what we're doing is rebuilding your gut health, helping you fix your metabolism, helping you to understand how your body works so you can really have the most energy and feel your best. But you also have to experiment with these things with some structure. So the third and final phase, we do something that's called macrophasing, which is, um, you know, if you're familiar with carb cycling, Mm -hmm. it's not carb cycling, it's literally macrophasing so that you could teach your body how to be metabolically flexible. So that you can have days where you're eating more carbohydrates and then days where you're maybe cutting down on carbohydrates, eating a diet that's healthy in fats, and and then a day that's like really lean and filled with tons of greens and vegetables and, and fruit. And, and when you teach people through the process of these three phases, by the time you get to that third phase, you can do that. And your body knows what to do with that energy source, not just store it as fat. Yeah. And so we call it macro phasing. And, and that requires a little bit more structure. You, you kind of have to know what you're eating. And I think sometimes people are like, I don't want to count. I don't want to know. I don't want to track. And I agree. I think we can get too obsessive about that. But from time to time, you got to look at your bank account. You can't just mm-hmm. spend. You know, and, and every time somebody does that, myself included, I try to do it, as I suggest in the book, at least once a quarter, I'm going to spend a couple of weeks just tracking because I'm always way off when I do them. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize hmm. I really let things slide. We all do. So it's, it's no different from just checking in on your bank account every once in a while. You've got a finite amount of energy. And by doing a little bit of tracking using a simple app like MyFitnessPal, you just kind of know, okay, here's where I'm at. Yeah. But I don't want people to get caught up in, like you probably know people like that. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm one gram yeah. over you know, and they're just miserable to be around. It's like, let live. Yeah. Like this is life and your body is going to balance everything out for you. Yeah. You know, that's mindset. It's so much more freeing to look at food as fuel and your friend and medicine. It can fix it. 
Absolutely. Because stress, even though it has zero calories, it can really <sighs> cause some issues with your body and how it's even dealing with that food. Yeah. When you're so, you know, um, obsessive about that one gram or whatever the case might be. So it's just finding that balance. But these are all things that, you know, we, we have to coach, we have to talk about because right. we've been so conditioned. It just depends on the person's story. Because some people listening were just like, I wouldn't be that upset about, you know, going over or whatever this. Yeah. Some people are, some you people know, are. and that's just one way of being. And it might have served them because we tend to do things that do work for us. And but then we get so attached to them that they cause dysfunction. Right. And that's what, again, what I really love about your approach is like looking at these things. Let's talk about them. Yeah. And here's some delicious food. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, so yeah. um, all the information about the, the protocol itself is in the book. Yes. But I want to talk to you while I have you here. I want to definitely cover this. And this is something you mentioned. I think it's so important that there are going to be setbacks. Mm hmm to expect them and prepare accordingly. And this is something I think a lot of us don't get because, you know, we're looking at, you know, we're going to start next Monday. We're going to start when we get back from the vacation. You know, I'm going to do this 30 days. I'm going to do this 60 days, whatever. Something's going to happen. Yeah. At some point, you know, for the vast majority of us, it might be, you know, kid gets sick. It might be, you know, uh, something, car problems. It might be whatever. Something's going to happen that if we can just start to talk about this, that something is going to happen, setbacks are going to happen, but we can prepare for them and be ready when they do. And not throw in the towel. So two things that drive me crazy. Um, not a fan of the term, uh, I cheated. I think that's a term that we should use for people who break their marriage vows. I don't think we should use the word cheat for someone who decides to eat a cupcake mm -hmm. or enjoy a glass of wine. You know, that's number one. So we, we have to get rid of this, um, well... I messed up, so therefore I'm done. And I blew it. I failed. Because we don't look at other important areas of our life that way. Like your faith, for example. If you have a, a week where you're like, gosh, I haven't spent any time reading the Bible or thinking about who it is I want to pray over, whatever it is, you don't go, well, I'm done for now, like and, until <laughs> I decide to do, pick this up again. You're, it's a journey, yeah. you know, and you're going to have ebbs and flows. And I also think it's really important that people understand this is not about, when I say this, being healthy. Yeah. It's not about perfection. You know, I, someone said to me the other day, like, do you eat anything processed? I'm like, I'm a human. Mm -hmm. Of course I do. But I also, I just evaluate it and I think about how it made me feel and I'm trying to eat as whole as possible. But there's going to be weeks when I'm traveling and I can't do it as well. But I don't say I'm off of health. I'm on health. I'm on this journey. And it's just like a marriage. You know, you're going to have weeks where you feel a little disconnected, but you're not out of the marriage, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, it's about just thinking about this is, this, is, this is part of who I am. And there's going to be highs and lows. And to just remove any shame and guilt and give ourselves grace because this is about trying to live longer and live better, live fuller, and be happier. All right, I hope that you're enjoying this longevity compilation. And you just heard from... New York Times bestselling author, Shaleen Johnson. When I think of Shaleen Johnson, I think of a queen bee. Now here's a little fun fact about queen bees. Queen bees live on average one to two years, two years. Whereas worker bees live an average of 150 to 200 days in the winter and only 15 to 38 days in the summer. Now we'll just average those numbers out and we'll say that the worker bees live about 100 days. 
That means the queen bee lives more than seven times longer than the worker bees. Right? The queen bee is on something special. What's going on there? How in the world does the queen bee have such longevity? Well, a developing queen bee is exclusively fed royal jelly, right? Royal jelly. It's also tied to multiple data sets now, connecting it with longevity. A study published in Advanced Biomedical Research found that royal jelly has the potential to literally improve our cognitive function, improving our spatial learning, our attention, and our memory. In addition, it's been found to have antimicrobial, anti-tumor, and anti-inflammatory properties. Royal jelly has also been found to facilitate the differentiation of all of our different types of brain cells. And to top it all off, researchers in Japan just recently discovered that royal jelly has the power to stimulate neurogenesis in the hippocampus. That is the creation of new brain cells in the memory center of the brain. That's longevity. We want to have, of course, great physical health, but we also want to have a great, healthy, high-functioning brain as we get older. We're just told this tale that as time goes on, you're just losing brain cells left and right, but we now have peer-reviewed, published data affirming how we can actually generate new brain cells. And royal jelly is one of the rare foods that helps us to do it. This is why before many episodes of the Model Health Show, I have Royal Jelly from Beekeepers Naturals and their incredible nootropic called Be Smart. Not only does it have this remarkable Royal Jelly, but it also has one of my all-time favorite other things, which is Bacopa. A randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trial published in 2016 found that after just six weeks of use, Bacopa significantly improved speed of visual information processing, learning rate, memory consolidation, and even decreased anxiety in study participants. Remarkable combination with Royal Jelly and Bacopa. One other really cool thing about Royal Jelly is that it contains a compound called 10-HDA, as well as AMP-N1 oxide, which are both responsible for stimulating neurogenesis. Now again, neurogenesis is the process of generating new neurons in the brain. This happens specifically in the area of the brain responsible for learning new information, storing long-term memories, and regulating emotions, right? Go to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model. You're going to get 25% off at checkout. It's going to be automatically taken off, 25% off at checkout. Go to B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S naturals.com forward slash model. Again, 25% off. Check out Be Smart. I know you're going to love it. It's one of those things proven to help extend not just our lifespan, but our health span from us to the queen bee. Next up in our compilation, we have professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School, Dr. David Sinclair. He's the New York Times bestselling author of the book, Lifespan. He's been featured everywhere from 60 Minutes to the Today Show, to the New York Times, Newsweek, and many other major media outlets. In this clip, he's gonna be sharing with you this important concept of eating stressed foods and also how to utilize the power of epigenetics. Check out this clip from the remarkable Dr. David Sinclair. We still don't have a complete human genome. 
because the, these missing pieces are very repetitive. And there are also little genes that were missed by the computer algorithms in the 2000s, which we, in my lab and others, we've gone back and we've compared humans to chimps and macaque monkeys. And these little genes, there are thousands of those, we think, uh, with proteins swimming in our bloodstream that control health and longevity. We have a lot to learn about the genome, but what people have mostly missed is the epigenome, because that's a lot harder to read. It, you can read a code, that's a one-dimensional um, program, uh, but to read something three and even four dimensions, if you include our lifespan over time, that required another 20 years of innovation. But we now have the tools where we can, this is really amazing, for, for something this, that costs, I think it's a few thousand dollars, but it's the size of a candy bar, um, it's about that big. In my lab, we can do your whole genome. Instead of for a billion dollars, I could do it for maybe a couple of hundred bucks now. Take me a couple of days. But we can also now read the epigenome and tell us where those loops are, where those bundles are, and also measure the chemicals that accumulate on our genome that tell us where the loops should be and how old we are, literally how old we are biologically. So throw out the candles. Who cares about candles? It's those chemical marks that seem to determine our actual age and how healthy we are. This is so cool. So I'm thinking in terms like we need to stop celebrating our chronological birthday and celebrate these biological birthdays because they're different. Well, they are. But the good news is you can't really turn back your chronological age. You can't really, well, you can lie about your age, but it's not going to help. But but you can, what we've discovered is we can now dial up aging, speed it up in animals. And now that we know how aging, we think we know how aging works, we can also reverse it. Yeah. So that, that's the, what I wanted to tell the world about because that changes how you think about your life. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't help but think about myself um, in my experience. When I was 20 years old, I was diagnosed with uh, a condition that's usually attributed p- to people who are much older, right? I had degenerative spinal disease, degenerative disc disease. And my physician said I had the spine of an 80-year-old man, not a healthy 80-year-old either. And to get that bill of goods when you're just 20, of course, it could do a big number on your psyche. But he also said this was incurable, right? I've created this situation and there's nothing I can do about it. And we can get into the nocebo effect and all that stuff. But the bottom line is it took about two years before I decided, let me try to do something about this. And I got a scan done. It's probably been about a year ago now. And my spine looks younger than the age I'm at now, right? right. How is that even possible? You know, and this yeah. is what you're talking about in the book. Well, that's the power of the epigenome. You're not changing your genome. You get that from your parents. But you can change your lifestyle. You can change it tomorrow, and you did. You were in a back brace as well. You I had threw a back that off. Brace. Yep. Yeah, it's impressive, but it, it doesn't I surprise me. It, man. Yeah, really. And that's what I want everybody to know. And you're doing a great job telling the world is that you can change your life. You can change your health just by how you live your life, even with without medicines. Yeah. And it's it's pretty easy to do, right? But it's super powerful. And the message that I'm bringing is, thanks to work in my lab and dozens around the world, we've also figured out, we think, why these things that you're doing and people who are healthy, why they work. Uh, Because they're turning on these defensive genes, these longevity genes that are in our bodies, but they don't get activated unless we do the right things, eat the right things, eat the right time of the day, we get enough sleep, um, we exercise in the right way. Then these genes come on and they protect us and they don't just slow aging, we see that they reverse many aspects of aging as well. Yeah. And I want to talk about some of these things specifically, but before we do, I really want to give people, I think it's a brilliant analogy of our genes functioning sort of like keys on a piano, 
So can you share that analogy? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the, the genes are, are like a, a piano with 20,000 keys. And imagine there's a, a pianist that's perfectly uh, young and, and uh, skillful when we're young. And this is our cells are able to read the right genes at the right time and place. So that's why when we get a cut, we get a cold, we recover very quickly. But what's happening is the pianist in each of our cells starts to lose her eyesight, starts to become a little bit demented and initially plays a few of the wrong keys. But if you're listening not too intentively, it still sounds great. But over time what's happening is then she's losing her eyesight, she can't see the music and she's banging the wrong keys. Eventually it sounds like crap and it's a cacophony and everyone's walking out of the symphony or, or uh, the performance. That's what ageing is. Mm. Our cells are losing their ability to read the right genes at the right time because these loops and these structures that we think we can now reset. So we can actually, we think, go in, give the pianist uh, or even get a new pianist or give that pianist glasses and new music. And within just a matter of weeks, now you get the symphony back again and cells work like they did when they were young again. Mm, wow, so cool. Um, and can we talk a little bit about, so how, how does the epi, epigenetics yeah. play into that whole equation? Oh, so the epigenetics are, it's, it's brand new. So this is science that you will, will not really read about anywhere else. The epigenetics are laid down during development. So as we're embryos, I mean, one of the miracles of, of what, what exists on this planet is you can take a fertilized single cell and make a, a baby that comes out with 26 billion cells that all know what they are and how to work and work together. Um, but over time, those instructions in each of those cells not the genes, but the ability to read the right genes, is lost. And that gets accelerated in part by not activating our longevity genes well. When we're young, we have a lot of activity. We don't need to exercise as much, right? But as we get older, they become complacent. If we're obese, if we sit around all day, you've written a book, I've written a book, we know what happens to our bodies. They lose activity, it's brutal. Uh, and eventually the pianist is, is, has lost her ability to play it. But what's great about what we've discovered is that you can make sure that those keys, the pianist stays young. She doesn't need glasses for much longer. Uh, and then what I didn't know until about a year ago, uh, and it is described in the book because I was writing it as we were making these discoveries, is that there's a backup pianist in our cells, every mm. one of them, that tells those loops and those bundles what they were like when we were babies. And we can access those just by turning on a set of three genes out of those 20,000 that sets in motion a program to reset the entire cell. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is so cool. So cool. So would the, the pianist be function, function sort of like the, ep the epigenetics? Yeah, the, the pianist is the epigenome and yeah. the piano is the genome. So it's determining which keys are getting played, which genes are getting expressed yes. and which ones aren't. That's right. Yeah. And every cell has to do that because the nerve cell in your brain has been there since we were young, right. and it's got to stay a nerve cell. If it starts behaving like a skin cell, we're in trouble. Mm. But that's what I think right. aging is. If we take an old mouse, two years old, and we look at its skin, its skin is going to look, look more like a nerve cell. And we have to remind it, go back to being a skin cell, you, you, you fool. But we can now do that. We have these reprogramming factors, reprogramming genes, that tells the epigenome how to restructure itself and read the genes as though it was young and cells remember what they should be doing. Yeah. 
But but old people we see, uh, or at least in old mice, we see that there are a cacophony, a mess, a melange of different cell types instead of being rigorously, you're a nerve cell, get back to being a nerve cell. And one of the amazing things that we did by resetting the eye, so we, we use the eye as, as one of our test uh, tissues. We can take an old mouse that's a year old and it doesn't see very well. We can actually measure mouse eyesight a number of ways. We can either measure the electrical impulses or we can uh, see if they can see moving objects. And in both those cases, we can, uh, by delivering these reprogramming, epigenetic reprogramming genes, we can tell the nerves at the back of that old eye to function again, to play the right keys, so turn on the right genes to be young. They do it. And just a few weeks later, those mice can see as well as they did when they were babies. Fascinating. That's so fascinating. And that's a complex organ. We're not yeah, talking about absolutely, right. just skin. An eye is probably the most complex part of the body. Yeah. If Well, the brain's probably more complex, but this is a big deal. Yeah. But what we can do right now is pretty simple. So you mentioned nutrients. Uh, first of all, we have a theory that uh, bears out, which is eat foods that are stressed, stressed out, uh, which is a weird concept, right? But we do it naturally. We, we drink, some of us drink red wine, which is a stressed grape before we pick it. We often eat coloured foods, so spinach is a dark green food. There's blueberries, which are dark. Uh, the whiter ones are not as, as good. So why is that? Well, stressed food produces a lot of what we call xenohermetic molecules. And uh, I'll explain what that means. It's a terrible word we coined, but xeno, X-E-N-O, means from other species. Mm-hmm. And hormesis is a very important word. you got to remember the word hormesis because every day you should think about it. Hormesis is what doesn't kill us, makes us live longer. And uh, it's a term that means you've got to get your body out of its complacency. You've got to trigger those defenses, those longevity genes. So xenohermesis is uh, you don't have to only run and eat well uh, at the right times, but you can also get these molecules from the right uh, animals and plants, but particularly plants that are stressed. Because when plants are stressed, they're making these molecules of health for their own benefit, Right. They're trying to survive. They're right. turning on their longevity genes. We forget plants have longevity genes too. Mm. So a stressed plant will make these coloured molecules to protect from UV and dehydration. When we eat them, they trigger our own body's defences and you can get the benefit. So that's nutrition, coloured foods, stressed foods. Organic is stressed, right? You don't want the perfect lettuce that's been not put any stress. Mm. Um, and we need to do more of that. We need to let our plants stress a little bit before we eat them. And then nutrition. There's a lot of nutrition. Now, there's a debate every week about what's good. What I do is in on the part three of the book, I list it out. Um, so I, I truly believe that we've got to mix it up, right? The secret is not so much what we eat, but when we eat. Um, and also what we eat should have variety. So I don't say only eat meat. I don't say only eat carbohydrate. Um, I eat a little bit of everything. I try to avoid big amounts of meat because there's one of these longevity pathways. Remember I said there are three main ones. One of them senses how much meat we eat and amino acids. So you need to give it time to rest and settle down. So that's important. So often I'm not eating a big steak, um, but I will eat meat if I've worked out because our body needs amino acids. Um, But that's it. Make sure that you – actually what's more important than what you eat is when you eat. How's that for an interesting thing to say? And what we've discovered with my collaborators, um, and I, I need to give a shout out to one of my friends at the NIH, National Institutes of Health, Rafael de Cabo, he studied 10,000 mice uh, 
And what he tried to figure out was, is there a diet that makes them live longer? And he mixed combinations of carbohydrate, protein, and fat, and was hoping to see finally what works. And he found out they all did the same thing. They all had short lifespans. But there was a one group where he only gave them the food two hours a day instead of all throughout the day. And they lived about 20 to 30% longer. Wow. Yeah. Love it. Wow. So I, if there's one thing I could say that I've learned after reading 10,000 papers and studying this my whole life, it's eat less often. That's it. So that, that's the key. The, the take-home message here is you want to trick your body into thinking times are tough. Adversity. Hormesis. So you can tell your body through eating stressed foods that times are going to be tough because your, your food supply is dying. You can trick your body into thinking that you need to be running away from saber-toothed cats because you get on a treadmill or you run or you, you lose your breath. Um, or you get hungry during the day. And that also tricks your body into thinking, whoa, I need to fight back against adversity. I need to fight against diseases. And the long-term effect of that, the benefit, is longevity. To close out this longevity compilation is one of my favorite people in the world. This human being is absolutely bubbling with energy. 75 years old, and he can run laps around people half of his age. No joke. I am not exaggerating by any means. He's playing tennis two to three hours a day. He's teaching, creating courses, writing books. He's got 15 books that he's authored. And I'm talking about none other than Dr. Johnny Bowden. He was actually the inspiration for doing this episode today because I want to encourage us to learn from people who've achieved the thing. He's just getting started. He's just getting started. If you talk to him and you see how he moves in the world, man, it's remarkable. Whereas people who are decades younger are so far behind as far as their health outcomes. And this is largely because of the culture of sickness that we're existing in. And he's one of the people who's leading the charge and helping us to change this narrative. In this clip, he's going to be sharing something that is a huge key to longevity, which is not dying. All right? Not dying from our leading culprits like heart disease, like obesity. Obesity is now attributed to hundreds of thousands of deaths, comorbidities every year here in the United States. Again, he's going to be sharing with you something that is helping us to avoid dying early, prematurely. In this clip, he's going to be sharing with you how to reduce your risk of heart disease and obesity by regulating a specific hormone that's controlled by our diet and lifestyle. Check out this clip from the one and only Dr. Johnny Bowden. Well, we have really been laboring under a lot of misapprehensions when it comes to nutrition. You know, my tagline is the nutrition mythbuster, and I, I never have a shortage of work to do when it comes to the myths about human nutrition. The American Heart, just to go down a fast rabbit hole, the American Heart Association a couple months ago uh, released their new guidelines. Well, that keep us busy for six months. I mean, don't eat tropical oils and make sure you're eating plenty of whole grains. And I mean, it just goes on and on and on with the same tired talking points that have made us fat, sick, tired, and depressed at epidemic rates. So we could talk about that. But in terms of, 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 um, of food and nutrition, we have to really unlearn a lot of what we've learned in the 80s and 90s. I, I didn't, I think Authority Magazine interviewed me, right? And they, they were like five ways they wanted, they, they have a series of, of five things you need to know about whatever the subject they're interviewing. And in my case, it was five things you need to know to maintain a healthy weight. 
my number two thing after the first one was to eat real food. That was number one. But the second one was forget everything you learned about nutrition in the 80s and 90s. Everything. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Well, maybe not. We should eat low-fat diets. Well, definitely not. You know, we should stay away from tropical oils. Yeah, no. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that we have to really unlearn about that. We were, I was a trainer at 1990 at Equinox when they opened, and as we've talked about, and, and the advice we gave, you know, mea culpa, I was one of the people telling people, I'm a breakfast, most important meal of the day, eat every two hours, snack, graze, mini meals. Well, that's crazy advice. Now, breakfast may be the most important, and this is where we need to get into the, how you personalize this information, because there are truths in there. If you're a kid in Appalachia, and you're going to school on an empty stomach, there's good studies that that breakfast really makes a difference in your performance, your attitude, your attention, your behavior, all those things. So yeah, as a general rule, when you're trying to like talk about people who are going to school with bag of, like in the wire, they'd go off with a bag of Doritos and a Pepsi for breakfast. Yes, yes, breakfast, very important meal. But for people like us who have the luxury of trying to get top performance out of our bodies and actually have the luxury of, you know, finding organic food or finding gyms and, and exercise things and climbing walls and all these things that are really not available to everyone. For us, it may very well be that breakfast is the worst meal of the day. <laughs> and, and many people have found that who have experimented with intermittent fasting. This has been one of the things I discovered over the pandemic, and I'd love to talk about that because it's a huge thing for not only energy, for weight control and metabolic health, something very, very important. And um, what I discovered was that not eating sometimes can give you more energy than eating. And I think a lot of people have found that by themselves. They've noticed that. Um, way before your time, there was a book called The Carbohydrate Addicts Diet. It was very big in the 80s. And you can look it up, The Carbohydrate Addicts. They had a whole series of books. And it was developed by a doctor. And two, 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 one was a PhD and one was an MD. And the PhD, Rachel, um, had a weight problem, always had a weight problem. And she was following all that advice and she was eating two, you know, three, five meals a day and starting with breakfast and all that and had cravings all the time and just could not manage her weight. And the way they discovered this carbohydrate addict's diet thing in the 80s, by the way, was one day she didn't eat until six o'clock. She just had a very busy schedule in her PhD program, whatever it was, and she didn't manage to eat. And she noticed that not only wasn't she very hungry, but she also didn't have a lot of cravings. So she ate this meal at six o'clock, and she notices the next day that her weight's down and bloat's down, and she says, I wonder what this could be. Anyway, with a lot of self-experimentation, they came up with this notion of, of carbohydrate addiction. And much investigation later, they realized that insulin was playing a role. This is way, be this isn't even, you know, this is way before this became part of the conversation for everyone interested in health. And no one even knew what insulin was in the general public then. But they realized that what was happening was that that 
pattern of eating was constantly elevating insulin, which, as you know, is the fat storage hormone. It's also known as the appetite hormone. So it really does not only create its own cravings, but it also tends to make you store fat and make it very difficult to lose it. And by eating less or by eating at precise times of day, she was able to control it. She didn't even know what it was she was controlling until they started looking into it more deeply. And they came up with this idea of eating only protein and vegetables during the day and having one meal with carbohydrates at night. That is probably a very dated concept, but the thing they were onto is not dated. The thing they were onto is how do we manage our insulin? And, and if you're not managing your insulin, you're not managing your metabolic health, it's that simple. I I actually, in, in writing the fasting course that I wrote recently, I investigated a lot of other people's work in fasting, including Jason Fung. And one of the things he does in his program um, is to tell people, I don't care how many carbs you're eating. I don't care how much protein you're eating. I actually don't care how many calories you're eating. I want to know one thing and one thing only about your food, and that is what effect does it have on your insulin? They actually say that, and that's actually something that I have I've adopted when I do occasionally coach somebody or work with someone privately. I go, I'm, let's not count carbs. There's one thing we want to know. And unfortunately, because we can't measure insulin, we have to use a surrogate, which is blood sugar. And that's why I always have clients, if I possibly can get them to do it, to get a continuous glucose monitor because that's our surrogate for what's really happening to blood sugar and insulin. I wear them periodically. Every couple months, I get one of them, put them on, just track it for myself to see what's happening with blood sugar because this is really the key to metabolic health that we're talking about right here. And to bring it back to energy, which is what you asked about in the first place, it's also the key to energy. Listen, you are one of the foremost experts in the world on this topic, and now, you you shifted things to specifically let's focus on the insulin response for you as an individual versus what this cookie cutter thing of you know it's supposed to be this way or that way now you said this this is one of the most remarkable things that's been that's been said on this show what's that and now listen i'm gonna say this again okay but we have to keep this in context okay and understand how profound this statement is you said okay. that not eating can give you more energy than eating now this again let's keep this in context and i want i want to dive into this more okay. because what both of us were taught i i paid for this education at Me a conventional too. university Me, and i taught people what we were going to say Go it's ahead. a very superficial look at what food is we and, and calories we look at calories that's energy if you want to have energy eat calories eat food and it's looking through things with tunnel vision because it's negating human digestion and the fact that of all the things in our lives that require energy, that siphon energy, it's eating. When we're putting food into our system, it is a very energy intensive process and requires so much of our body's attention mm -hmm. to turn that food into human tissues. Mm -hmm. It's miraculous. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't, it's not like David Blaine coming along and <laughs> doing something. It's like, it's an actual, arduous process because we're making food whether it's a you know wild caught salmon or a twinkie it's mm -hmm. turning that into human tissue mm -hmm. and quote energy mm -hmm. specifically in the form of this energy storage mm -hmm. so for you to say that not eating can potentially give folks more energy than eating that's a very profound statement well think about it if you've ever done a fast 
uh, even attempted to do a fast and you've managed to stay away from food for a day, what happens on the second day? Everybody reports this. They're, they're flying off the walls with energy. They're, I mean, they're clear and their minds are bright and they're like, now you can't sit, uh, Sean, obviously, we have to put it in context. This isn't a rule for all time. Don't walk away and say that crazy nutritionist said, if I don't eat, I'll be fine. I'm not saying don't eat all the time. We're talking about how sometimes not eating can actually stimulate your metabolism in a way that you actually perceive yourself as being way more sharp, way more focused, way more optimistic, way more engaged. And, uh, you know, if I were... I'm going to do a big thing like the Dr. Oz show or, or the Model Health show. I'm not going to eat a big meal before I come on there. Would you? Would anybody? You want to get there. You want to be there lean, mean, and hungry and, and, and on fire. So a big meal is just going to make me want to sit like back after the Thanksgiving meal. And of course, everybody gets tired because, as you say, there's a huge amount of energy required in digestion. I'm not... Re re I'm not suggesting to people that they don't eat. I'm saying that some of the tried and true uh, mantras that we gave people in the 80s and 90s have turned out not only to not be true, but sometimes to be counterproductive. Eating every two hours is a really stupid idea. Maybe there are exceptions who are Olympic athletes or football players or people who are training and doing... I, uh, I'm talking about for the average person, all that's doing is, number one, constantly requiring more insulin. So insulin is always on call. It's always up there. It's always got to get rid of the sugar in your bloodstream that comes up because you just ate every two hours and you can't go an hour without a power bar. And number two, it prevents you from using your fat stores as energy because you're constantly giving it new fuel. You're eating a power bar every two hours. Why the hell would it go to your fat stores? So all of that has to do not only with energy, but with digestion and weight gain, and weight loss and weight gain. And I, I hate to keep coming back to insulin resistance, but I honestly believe this is the other pandemic that nobody's talking about. And I know we, we're not going to touch too much the situation in California and with COVID and stuff, but if you look at the statistics of younger people who have been felled by this virus, 61% of them obese. And, and I would argue that they say, oh, they had no unconditioned, they had no previous conditions. I'm not so sure. 80, there's statistics on this in the United States. 88% of people have some degree of insulin resistance. How is that no pre-existing condition? So it's a very important thing to me to, to, to alert people in our book, um, The Great Cholesterol Myth, what we found when, when really looking at this is that insulin resistance is a better predictor of heart disease than cholesterol is. Way better. And, and they've known this since the 70s. And insulin resistance can be treated, prevented, and reversed with diet and exercise and lifestyle. Dude, you don't need a drug. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. If you did, please share it out with your friends and family. Of course, you can tag me. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram and Twitter and at The Model Health Show on Facebook. And you, of course, can send this directly from the podcast app that you're listening on. It really does mean a lot. And if you yet to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for The Model Health Show. And you can also rate the show now on Spotify as well. And one other thing, make sure that you are subscribed to The Model Health Show on your favorite podcast app. Hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss a thing. We've got some incredible masterclasses and epic interviews coming up very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. I appreciate you so much for tuning in. Take care. Have an amazing day. I'll talk with you soon.
And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.